And so we continue a series called Tough Questions based in the verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, how to give an answer for the hope that we have and to do so with gentleness and respect. Being always prepared. And part of that preparation is being prepared even in very difficult circumstances where often the answers are very difficult to come by. Where emotions and backgrounds and and persuasions and all play together into what do we say, how do we react, and how much more so when those issues have to do with race and racial tensions and how we line up our views on such things. Is it make-believe? Is it based in perception that's become reality? Are all law enforcement officers bad? Are all black people criminals seeking to harm? I mean, some of these things are being set. And to calmly say, wait a minute, what does it mean to be people of God, people of Jesus at a time such as this? And to that, I want to share with you a question that has been submitted that is very well stated. It's very long. I'm going to be honest about that, but listen to these words. I think you will be blessed by them. And in many ways, they are a sermon message onto themselves. Here's the question. Who is my neighbor? You might not have expected such a question to have made it into your inbox following your request for tough questions to cover. But after hearing of what has happened in recent days and seeing how the nation is wrestling with it, I felt that I would be remiss in not asking that it be addressed. My heart is heavy over the news of recent week's killings in Louisiana, Minnesota, and in Dallas. I grew up watching Sesame Street as a young child and remember my confusion and disappointment when my kindergarten and first grade classrooms didn't look like the rainbow of faces I had grown so attached to. It was explained to me at the time that that's not how things were where we lived. And as children are wont to do, I naturally asked the familiar question, why? At various moments throughout my grade school years as a student, I was taught about some of the wrongs that had been perpetrated against others throughout history. We learned about how our ancestors devastated the native population on this continent how we brought people from Africa and enslaved them. We learned about Hitler's attempt to exterminate the Jews and create what he thought would be a pure race. As children, we were appalled at the injustice. We asked lots of questions like, how could they have done this or that? And why didn't someone do something to prevent it? Honest questions from innocent children. Questions that, for lack of experience, fail to take into account the complexities of life, but which, at the same time, boil the issues down to their simplest. Why didn't somebody do something? Some may go as far as to say that our childish questions were actually quite insightful. After all, we don't kill Native Americans today, do we? We don't enslave Africans today, do we? So we must conclude that something changed between then and now. What logically follows then is the question, why couldn't that change have happened sooner? Moreover, why did the injustice have to happen in the first place? I remember my teacher's nods and shrugs. They couldn't disagree with the logic of our questions, 
They had no good answers. What had been done was clearly wrong, and the people who carried it out should have, must have known better. Those lessons were not lost on me. I tucked them away in my heart and carried them with me into adulthood. I'd learned that collectively we, are, we were as capable of great harm as we were of great good, and that we needed to be vigilant if we wanted to keep from repeating history's grave mistakes. Today, I cannot help but feel that we have failed at that mission. As I hear and read about the details of the injustices carried out by our own justice system, I hear myself thinking, as I've heard many others say, I was unaware that such atrocities were being committed here in my very own backyard. And if I examine myself honestly, I am forced to admit that I bear every bit as much responsibility for those acts as those who accepted and perpetuated the atrocities I referred to earlier. With hindsight, it's all so easy to see. How have I been so blind to the truth myself? Do I believe that sins of omission are somehow less than sins of commission? Oh, my definition of, or is my definition of the sanctity of human life restricted to the very young and the very old, rather than including everyone in between as well? Have I forgotten Christ's command to love our neighbors as ourselves? Like the expert in the law asked Jesus in Luke chapter 10, I am forced to ask again, who is my neighbor? And practically speaking, how can I love him? And... Uh, there's a lot to think about in that. Where do we go with that? Where does that bring your mind and heart today, asking that question? Who is my neighbor? And I think we need to, to lay this out before I go further and, and before you start emailing me, well, how could you not say this? And why didn't you say that? And how could you say that? Well, come on. I, I pray we're mature enough to realize that not all law enforcement officers are bad, right? And, and I, I spent some time on the phone this week counseling a police officer who is grieving the loss of brothers who, who share that badge and, and, and living in fear with others who, who carried out that task of enforcing the law and yet living in a day and age where realizing they may be a target. Also, may we not be so ignorant to say that anyone who would side themselves with the Black Lives Matter movement is out to hurt law enforcement off agents. You know? Many people are lifting that up to say, don't you see it? Don't you get it? And, and I, I've seen it, you know, I, I read social media like you do maybe, and, and you see what's being said. And like, well, statistically more white people are, are killed by police officers every year. Well, if you look at it more carefully, by population and by minority groups, it is more likely to be black based on your race and be shot by a police officer than a white person is. It, it, it breaks down that way. That is truth. And, and I, I think about how I heard a pastor speak. His name's Harvey Carey. He's a pastor in the inner city of Detroit. And years ago, I heard him speak in the suburb of Chicago where I was a pastor. And, he was sharing, you know, every once in a while he'll have churches that contact him from the suburbs and say, hey, we want to do 
mission work in your neighborhood and they get that all set up and then you'll get the email saying, well, Harvey is, uh, you know, what kind of precautions are being made to ensure that our, our kids and our families are going to be safe when they serve in the inner city uh, with, with your church? And, and, and Harvey kind of laughs and smiles and says, well, the same precautions we take because we live here, you know, and this is our home, you know, and we're so sheltered from that. And he says, and, and it's funny, he says, I'm actually more afraid to go out in the suburbs than I am to live in my own neighborhood. And he says, the reason is, and he gave this example, he was driving uh, in Schaumburg, uh, suburb of, of Chicago, and a really nice suburb, really nice place if you've been there. And he was driving with uh, the pastor where the church he was speaking at was in the passenger seat. And they're driving along. Uh, down one of the roads in Schaumburg, and the light changes to yellow, and most of us would just kind of speed up and go through it in that context. He slammed on the, on the brakes uncomfortably so that they lunged forward to stop in time. And, 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 and the white pastor says to Harvey, what did you do that for? You, you could have gone ahead. He says, well, that's the difference between you and me. He says, because if I go through that yellow light, chances are I could be arrested. And, and he says, I speak from that place of being an African-American man who's experienced that. And you say, oh, come on. Well, you know what? I, I got to say this. I don't know what that's like. I've never walked down the street on the sidewalk and, and walked past someone in, sitting in their car and heard the doors locked because I walked by. And I hear from some of my African-American brothers. They say it happens all the time. And for us to say that race doesn't matter and, and racial tensions don't exist, we need to be very careful that we don't just explain this away to people who are getting too emotional. It is real, and it needs to be talked about. And talked about not with violence, not in anger, but rather in a way that can bring people around a table to see each other, to listen to one another, to love one another. That's why I love what Jesus says. He gets really... The context is he's getting cornered by a teacher of the law, an expert in the Torah and the Old Testament scriptures. He, he's cornered by this teacher of law, and it, it says in Luke 10 that his desire is to test Jesus. And, and the question he asks is pretty profound. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know how this often happens. Really good teachers, they don't just give the answer. They respond with a question, as Jesus often does in his teaching. He asks them, he says, well, what do the scriptures say? And how do you understand them? By the way, I think this is kind of interesting because we can learn about a lot from Jesus and how to interact with our culture and how to give a witness for the hope that we have in Jesus and to do so with gentleness and respect, knowing Jesus knows the heart of the one who asked the question. And knowing that he wants to test him, does Jesus get aggravated? Does Jesus get defensive? Does Jesus get angry and start an argument? No, it's just interesting to me. He calmly just responds with a question. What's the scripture say? How do you understand it? And you might add, it gives Jesus an opportunity to listen. And the teacher in the law Respond. He says this, well, this is what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he's quoting 
from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, and it also says, love your neighbor as yourself. A quotation from Leviticus. And Jesus answers, you, you, you've answered correctly. And I have to believe the teacher of the law for a moment is like, yes, I got it right. He's applauding me. Of course he's applauding me. I'm a teacher of the law. I know everything. I'm a good person. <laughs> and then Jesus responds and says, if you fulfill that, you'll inherit the eternal life. Implied. But also understanding, what does it mean to fulfill loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all of your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself? Who can do that? Because understanding God is perfect, God is holy, God is just, to fulfill that would require perfection. And we've talked about that in the past here. No one can live up to that. And yet in Jesus' interaction with this teacher of the law, it says that this teacher of the law then wants to justify himself. Because maybe he's thinking, you know, I've dedicated my life to loving God, teaching others about God, lifting up what is right, and even if it is legalism, his eyes are blinded to that fact of his own sin, perhaps. But then he tries to clarify, he says, but who is my neighbor? And before we go with Jesus' response, we'll go into that a little more deeply Back in those days, there was a teaching that had become very prevalent among the religious leaders. And that was that when the Old Testament scriptures speak of loving your neighbor as yourself, they had narrowed that definition to be that a neighbor represented anyone who was, according to the Old Testament laws and regulations, righteous in the sight of God or righteous in the sight of the church. They had narrowed that view to love your neighbor who is like you, who is righteous, who is religious. Love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe this is part of the way that the teacher of the law is trying to test Jesus in this to see if he holds to that view as well. And I would add, is that the view we hold as well? Because Jesus challenges that by telling the story and maybe a very familiar story to most of us, but in, in being familiar, sometimes we lose what's even going on here. You know, this man who says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, again, doesn't counter that with anger, hostility, or argument. Rather, he just gently lays out an example by way of a story. Jesus tells about a man who's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's a 17-mile journey. It's downhill. That's why he's going down. The elevation changes like 1,800 feet. And it was a road known for a lot of crime. There were a lot of, um, a lot of caverns along the way or, or, or areas where caves were along the path. And, and, and so it was a great place for robbers and, and criminals to hide out and, and then surprise attack someone who maybe un unsuspecting, very, very unsafe road to travel. So when Jesus telling the story, it would have already resonated. Yeah, that's, that's a bad side of town to go. It happens all the time. It was in the news, people were getting robbed. It, it happened. And Jesus says, as this man implied a Jew is making his way down, he gets robbed. He gets carjacked, you might say. He gets left for dead, laying there naked with nothing bleeding, left for dead alongside the road. 
And in Jesus' story, he then tells of two people who come along, the first being a priest, one who works in the temple, another being a Levite who not only has a job in the temple, but also, according to his ancestry, was designated by God to be very religious and important in the worship life of, of God's community. These are two people, they're like, these are about to be heroes in Jesus' story. And as they walk along, in both cases, though the, the language gets intensified with the second one, both of them, however, pause long enough to see the man who is in need. They see the blood. They see the despair. And they actually go out of their way to avoid it. Now, in fairness, Jesus doesn't give context. Maybe one of them is, is on his way to the hospital to visit one of his members in church or, or in, in the hospital. You know, maybe that's what's going on. He doesn't tell us what's going on in their minds or their motivations. But what is clear is either they're too busy or they don't care or they think, hey, I don't know that person doesn't apply to me. And they actually walk out of their way to avoid it. Pretty powerful illustration to visualize that, right? And then Jesus tells the Samaritan. Now, you, Samaritans were hated. A Samaritan, a Samaritan should not be the hero of this story. And, and this is kind of a setup for like, what are you talking about? Oh, the Samaritan, well, he's going to turn around and walk the other way because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. This goes way back. I mean, Samaritans betrayed their lineage. They were traitors. They were considered unworthy, unwanted, leave them alone, cast away. I mean, Jews would actually avoid Samaria at all costs, even if it meant going, you know, miles and miles out of their way if they needed to travel, to not touch the ground called Samaria in any way. It was considered disgusting and unwanted, and, and they hated them, hated Samaritans. And of all the people that Jesus could use to lift up in the story, he says the Samaritan comes along, and he sees the man. And not only sees him, Jesus says that he's moved to mercy, moved to compassion. There's this great word, um, actually our synodical president, it's one of his favorite words, Matt Harrison, uh, say it with me, splagna. Say it again, it's kind of fun. You hear when you, when you say it right, you, your, your, your guts move a little bit. Splagna. It, the way you say it, it, it comes from the depths of, of your belly, and, and that's the meaning of the word is it he was moved to compassion in his gut. You've ever been in a moment where you are moved to that kind of compassion, where you feel the pain of someone, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's someone you visited in hospital, maybe it's someone who's faced a diagnosis, or, or someone that you know is going through a hard time and you lose sleep over this because you're in your belly, in your gut, is this despair, this brokenness for that person. This is the word for compassion. It's the word for mercy. And Jesus says, a Samaritan of all people who would have been hated by the man laying on the ground is moved to splagna. Mercy. What does he do? He pauses and he actually helps the man with his wounds. He 
He bandages them up. He, he pours oil and wine. This would be medicinal ways of treating it, kind of like uh, antibacteria kind of stuff we would use today. And, and with that, he then puts them in his Bentley. I'm kidding. He puts them in his car. He puts them on his donkey. And, and we don't underestimate this. His donkey would have been, had a, probably would have had an expensive, either a, a blanket or a saddle. And he's risking making that all bloody with this man's blood and, and despair. He actually puts them on his own animal, be the equivalent of putting someone who is injured and in pain in your own car and, and not worrying about whether the blood's going to get on the seat in the upholstery. He drives him to an inn and, and he, he says he doesn't rush out of there. He says he actually cares for the man. And, and I, I didn't catch that when I last read this text that he doesn't just leave. He, he spends time there. He, he is not rushing to the next thing. you got to believe it's not that there wasn't something to go on to, that he didn't have something on his schedule, but everything else didn't matter in that moment. He was present for a man in need who in his mind and heart shouldn't have mattered because he was hated by him. And yet he spends that time, a ministry of presence, and then he goes to the innkeeper, hands him two days' pay. It would have been two denarius. Denarius is one day's salary. It would have been equivalent to two days' pay. Not a small amount of money. He says, take care of this man, not just with a room, but take care of him. And, and I'll be back, and when I do, I'll, I'll, I'll reimburse you for whatever expenses come up. Splagna. Compassion. Mercy. It's interesting how mercy is expensive. It costs time, it costs effort, it can even cost money. It, it can cost our emotions and, and to be there for someone who may be different than us, who is in need and overwhelmed. So Jesus tells the story to a question, who is my neighbor? Now before I get into how this story ends, I want to read to you what, what Luther says. Martin Luther says this, our neighbor is any human being, especially one who needs our help. As Christ interprets it in Luke chapter 10, even one who has done some sort of injury or harm does not stop being my neighbor. Through the story, Jesus is already addressing the popular view of the day that you could choose who your neighbor was. As long as they were like you or like a bull, that would be your neighbor. Jesus throws that aside and says, no, it, it's not like that. It's someone who maybe even hates you. Someone who maybe has done you harm. Someone who has ruined your life. They too are your neighbor. I mean, this, this turns common sense on end. But then Jesus takes it a step further. He ends the story by asking another question. Which of these three, and he's speaking to the teacher of the law, which of these three do you think, listen carefully, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Did you hear that? Jesus' question is, who was the neighbor? What was the original question? Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him what a neighbor is. Do you see how that changes? 
goes from wondering, well, who is my neighbor? What's the minimum requirement for me to love God and, and still love the people in my life? And, and Jesus says it's about everybody. But more importantly, it's about what does a neighbor look like? What does a neighbor do? What motivates a true neighbor? Well, the teacher of the law chooses wisely. He says, well, of course, the one who had compassion, who had splagna on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. What's it mean for us today to be a neighbor? In the days in which we live, in the hostilities and, and the tensions and the struggles around us, what does it mean to be a neighbor? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It's very clear from Jesus' story that, you know, when we talk about what's the opposite of love, I hear this said all the time, well, the opposite of love is hate. And the reality is, I don't think that's actually true. Sometimes hate can be very passionate, especially if it's anger toward injustice or anger toward this is not the way it's supposed to be. That can be very passionate and actually very loving. Really often the opposite of love is indifference. And we see that in what Jesus teaches. God calls us not to be people who are indifferent, but to be people of splachna, people of mercy, people of compassion. And as we understand that and know it well, it's not that we do that and then God will love us. No, where does that mercy and compassion come from? It's from realizing we are the man who is laying there on the side of the road. Jesus is the one who comes to us when we didn't deserve it, when we are at odds against him. He's the one who not only invests everything in us, he does by laying down his life in our place. The ultimate sacrifice to Jesus his mercy, His blagna for people like us. And for people, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their views or beliefs or understandings, our calling today is to be people who go out with blagna and love. Who is my neighbor? Or maybe more importantly, what is a neighbor? May God move in us to be that answer in these days. In Jesus, we, we pray. Lord, we ask you to teach us to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to not fade away in indifference or step out of the mix of being able to engage people around us, but Lord, to realize our neighbor is every person you put in our path. And being a neighbor, Lord, is expensive. It often requires and leads us to do things that go beyond anything we could ever fathom, being sacrificial and, and giving and serving and loving. Being a neighbor to others, Lord, isn't because they deserve it, isn't because they've earned it. But Jesus, you teach us what splagna mercy is all about by being that one who gives of mercy to us. Motivate us, lead us to realize who we were before you got a hold of us and to go out to be Jesus to our world, to be that answer to that longing that our world has for true neighbors who love and care. Teach us, lead us, guide us, and calm down those broken relationships that exist, we pray, by the love and the power of your people. In Jesus' name.